And this morning we will look at verses 20 through 25 of 1 John chapter 2. The title of my sermon this morning is Confessing and Abiding in Jesus. And for our worshipers in training, your key words are Son, Father, Confess, and Abide. So let's look at 1 John chapter 2, and I actually want to begin where we did last week in verse 18, and we will read to the end of verse 25. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were never of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know the truth, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us. Eternal life. I want to tell you up front that where we going Where we're going in the verses next week, we'll continue on this theme. So this morning, we will look at these verses and we will spend most of our time explaining the text. And next week, we will spend more time in applying what he continues to say in the verses to follow. Just to recap, from last week, we discussed that the Apostle John knows that in the congregation that he's writing to, There are Christians and there are Antichrists. In other words, there are true believers in Christ and there are those who are deceivers or liars. And the word he uses is Antichrist who have come in to infiltrate the church. And this section, verses 18 and 19 and verses 20 through 25, is written to show the readers of John's letter the difference between one who is a true Christian and one who is a deceiver. All throughout this epistle of 1 John, he's outlining certain tests that help us to determine who true believers are. We've seen three tests already. One of them we covered last week. One was the doctrinal test. Two was the love test. And last week we looked at the perseverance test. 
So John tells us that Christians are known by their doctrine. That Christians have a right view of sin. They have a right view of Christ. Christians are known by their fruit. They are a people who are obedient to the Word of God. They demonstrate spiritual love toward one another. And as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, Christians do not love the world or the things of the world. Important to remember in this is that John was addressing true believers. Remember in verse 18 at the very beginning, he addresses them as children. And he does that all through the epistle to remind them that they are a part of the family of faith. And as an apostle, he is addressing them as such. So John was answering for the church why some who were in the church had left. They had followed heretical teaching. They had committed apostasy. They had left the church altogether. And these believers were looking at John and asking, we thought you told us if we are Christians that we would never leave. We would never walk away from the truth. We would always be in the church and God would keep us that we would persevere till the end. And John wrote his response here. They went out from us because they were never of us. They were never true believers to begin with. So we can conclude by John's statement that, and this is amazing, the end of verse 19, that God allows false teachers to actually come into the church, to influence various individuals within the church, to pull them away from the church. And people in the church look at them and ask questions. What happened? Where did they go? Why did they leave? What are we missing here? They seem to be true believers. They were in the church and they seemed to be true believers by everything we could see. All visible signs were there. They taught Sunday school. They were involved in this ministry for five or ten years. They prepared meals for their small group. They came to corporate worship every Lord's Day. I even saw them get baptized and talk about how the Lord has worked in their lives. What happened? How could this happen? Why did they leave? And the Apostle John responds anticipating all of these questions. And he says, this is one way in which God reveals who is real and who is false. Their departure was their unmasking. And in essence, he's saying it was good that these false teachers came and led those astray who were never truly of us in the first place so that they would not remain like a rotten apple in the barrel to spoil the whole bunch. That's amazing to me. 
I'm actually saying, as John is writing, that God allows antichrists to enter into the church so that His purposes, His divine will, can be accomplished in the purification of the bride of Christ. We have an example of that in 2 Corinthians 12. The Apostle Paul spoke of God allowing a messenger of Satan to tear up the Corinthian church. And he explained that there was a thorn in his side. God allowed the messenger of Satan to come into the Corinthian church to accomplish the humility of the Apostle Paul. So God allows error to come into a church to be sown amongst believing people. And we see that in abundance today because of the various forms of media especially. It's in books that are published. We see it in magazine articles, internet sites, television, on the radio. All of this so that antichrists may pull people toward themselves who in the end are fakers. Those who are not true believers. And in doing so, God is cleansing His church. Purifying the bride of Christ. It's amazing. We will always see people who we thought were strong, faithful believers in Christ who will one day get up and walk away. Following false teachers, following false doctrines, even if that false teaching doesn't present itself in the form of a belief system that we may be familiar with. It could simply be the belief system of secularism or worldliness. But we know that there are always going to be false teachers and they are being used by God to attract false believers like a magnet away from a true and biblical view of Christ. And in the end, we must say, if they had been of us, if they were faithful, true believers who worshipped Christ in spirit and in truth, they would have remained with us because true believers persevere to the very end. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 say, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. You, true believer, have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Romans 5 says that you have made peace with God through His Son. That is glorious. You have been given to God, holy and righteous, because of Jesus. But, you have to hear the rest of what the Apostle Paul wrote there in verse 23. All of this is true if indeed you continue in the faith 
stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. If you continue in the faith, if you persevere. So negatively, he's saying, if you do not continue in the faith, then you never were holy and blameless before God. You were never justified or reconciled to God. But true believers persevere to the end. Because God keeps them to the end. With their names having been written in the book of life before the foundations of the earth. And so that's where we left off last week. That's our backdrop for verses 20 through 25. And I want to look at this in three sections this morning. Verses 20 through 21, you have knowledge of the truth. Verses 22 through 23, liars are deniers and confessors are possessors. And verses 24 through 25, abiding in the truth is abiding in God. So let's begin in verses 20 and 21. You have knowledge of of the truth. Let's read those verses again. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. John is now providing emphatic words of encouragement to the true believers in the church by pointing out that they have obviously stood firm in the faith and have not been attracted by false teachers who have come into and have left the church. The difference, John is pointing out in verse 20, between those who went out and the true believers who remain is grounded in that the faithful, true believers, the Christians, have received an anointing from the Holy One. We see that in that word, but, at the very beginning of that verse. They went out from us. They were never of us. God uses that for His purposes to cleanse His church. But you, believers in Christ, you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. So let's look at what that means. To have an anointing to answer the questions, who is the Holy One and what knowledge do they have? What is this knowledge that He speaks of? So first, what does you have been anointed mean? John is doing a sort of play on words here in the Greek, and I think it is important. So listen to the words he's using, and you'll hear it. You don't have to know the language to hear this. He's using the word antichrist, antichristos, Christ, Christos, and anointed, chrisma. So you hear the similarities there. He's using these words to explain the difference between those who have gone out from the church and those who have remained in the church. So we can read it this way. Those chrisma in Christos all alone can resist 
those chrisma with the spirit of Antichristos. In other words, those who are anointed in Christ alone can resist those anointed in the spirit of the Antichrist. So let's look at chrisma, anointing. Early on in the Old Testament, we see that anointing was used for the purpose of the consecration of and the setting aside of an individual or an object for a particular sacred purpose. In Exodus, God commanded that the priests and the elements used in the tabernacle and for worship were to be consecrated and anointed. Later, we see anointing as a signifying of the Spirit of God having come to dwell with a particular individual so that he can either rule or prophesy for God. And we see that with King David in 1 Samuel 16 and with the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 61.1. And all of this in the Old Testament certainly points forward to Christ and provides us with a backdrop to understand the anointing of Jesus in the New Testament. Peter preached to the Gentiles, as we read in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. The Apostle John in his Gospel account in chapter 14 refers to the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in every true believer in Christ. As Jesus promised the Helper, He promised the Paraclete to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him. Why? For He dwells with you and will be in you. So this anointing that John is now writing about is the protection that believers have against the false teachers, the antichrists. The anointing here is referencing the giving of the Holy Spirit to a person. And this is one of the great comforts This is one of the great joys of the Christian life. As true believers, as those who are truly saved, at the moment we are justified by our faith in Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior of our lives, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That was Jesus' promise to us. He, the Holy Spirit, dwells with you and will be In you, the Holy Spirit. Wrap your mind around that. The third person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit of the Godhead dwells within you. That is glorious. And that is the anointing that John is referring to here in verse 20. So who is the Holy One that he talks of? The Greek term chrisma is related to the title Christ, which means anointed one. And is used in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, for the anointing of a high priest. And there are several places in the New Testament 
that refer to Jesus as the Holy One of God. Twice he's given the title, the Holy One. So what we see here is that we are anointed. We are given the Holy Spirit by the Holy One who is Jesus. And while we know Jesus Himself was anointed by the Holy Spirit from the Father, true believers in Christ have the anointing from the Father also. I know that may be a bit confusing. So, here's what I'm saying simply. True believers in Christ have the Holy Spirit from the Father as well as from the Son. And this anointing is proof. It is evidence that we are in the Father and in the Son. We are united with the Holy One, Jesus, because the Holy One has anointed us. He has given us the Holy Spirit. And because of this, because of this anointing, we are joined to the Holy One and share in His anointing. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Amen. The Holy Spirit given to us by the Father and the Son is our guarantee. So what knowledge do they have? This is a very interesting statement that John makes here. You all have knowledge. He's making a very important connection here between the Word and the Spirit. First, the statement itself can be understood to mean that all the knowledge that is necessary all the truth that believers need to resist the Antichrists is already known to them. In other words, the true believers in Christ know the Gospel. Let me ask you, do you know the Gospel? I'm not just talking about do you know the idea that Jesus Christ was God that He lived a perfect life, died on a cross, received the full wrath of God on our behalf, was buried and on the third day was resurrected and now sits at the right hand of the Father to rule forever and ever in eternity. I'm asking, do you know that truth to be true in your life? to the extent that it transforms every single aspect of your life. Not just your bad habits. Not just a few things you add to your schedule. I'm talking about your heart. Does the Gospel, has the Gospel changed your heart? Here's a good test. Can you resist the spirit of the Antichrist? Can you look at everything in this world? Your money, your possessions, 
your relationships, your very life. And like the Apostle Paul, call it rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the anointing of the Holy One that illumines the Gospel in a way that is real and active and effectual in your life minute by minute by minute. And in light of a lot of false teaching in this understanding of anointing, I want to make clear what John is getting at here in connection to giving the Holy Spirit with the knowledge that is possessed. Nowhere in Scripture is it ever suggested that the Holy Spirit works in hearts apart from the Word of God. The Spirit and the Word are companions and they always work together. The Holy Spirit will never lead the believer in a direction that contradicts the teachings of the Word of God. And this is very important in this context because John is addressing the fact that these antichrists are attempting to achieve some sort of special knowledge apart from the Word of God. Yet everything in Scripture screams out that this is impossible. Those who are anointed by the Holy One, the true believers in Christ, have knowledge that is sufficient to reject false teaching, to reject the Antichrists, and to remain steadfast in Jesus. Because true believers have the Word. Remember what we discussed last week, and it's been mentioned a few times throughout this series through 1 John. John is addressing the specific heresy of Gnosticism. The belief that the only way to salvation was through some sort of special knowledge that was only arrived at by the super spiritual elite. So here again, John is opposing that teaching. He's asserting that all believers already know the truth. Look at verse 21, I write to you, the reason I'm even taking the time to do this, the reason I'm expending the effort to write all of this out for you is not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie is of the truth. So you see, as an apostle, John was merely reminding them of what they already knew. And reminding them that they have no need for any special knowledge outside of the Word of God. So John is encouraging the church in these verses. Don't question what you know. Don't doubt the truth of Scripture. All you saw happening when those people left was the unmasking of hypocrites. You saw people who never did believe in the first place. John's saying, you Christians, don't be shaken by that. Don't be shaken by the fact that that happened. Don't expect that that's never going to happen. It will. There are antichrists all over the planet right now. And some are going to infiltrate the church. 
They're going to deceive people and they're going to lead them out. But when they go out, know this. They were never really of us. And the fact that this is going on should prove to you that it is the last hour. And that Jesus indeed is the Messiah. Or there wouldn't be such an assault on Him and His people. So John is making the emphatic point that instead of making them question their faith, it should have strengthened their faith. It should be the very opposite of producing doubt. It should produce confidence. Don't question why you stayed when they went out and when they attempted to attack the church. You stayed because you're real. Because you love the truth. You stayed because God protected you. Because you're one of His own. You stayed because God, by His Holy Spirit, has given you the will to persevere. Because God has given you a new nature which abides which remains, which continues, which doesn't default and doesn't betray and doesn't rebel and doesn't revolt and doesn't abandon the truth. So how can you tell a true Christian from an antichrist? A true Christian is never deceived. They may doubt. They may question. They may temporarily be led astray. They may be enticed by their spiritual infancy or instability. But a true believer will not abandon the truth. There may be a time of testing. There may be a time of wandering even. And I know many of us have been there. There may be a time of questioning and maybe even some doubting. But in the end, true Christians are never deceived. So, real quick, before we move off this thought, I want to point out one thing which seems plain to me from these two verses. And that is the truth of this stated negatively. Namely, that without the Spirit, we would not know the truth. And, positively, this knowing of the truth is a gift. Knowing about Christ, knowing Christ, knowing the Gospel, applying and living in the Gospel, cherishing the truth of the Gospel, is a gift from the Holy One. What that implies, then, is that you, man of God or woman of God, you know the truth and want to live in the truth and walk in the Spirit because God has given you the gift of faith. We who were once enemies of God have been reconciled to God. Not because we wanted to be. Hear me now. We were not reconciled to God because we wanted to be. There was nothing in us that wanted anything to do with God. But because He caused us to want to be, by giving us the Holy Spirit, illumining the truth of the Holy Scriptures, that we can all have knowledge 
and see that no lie is of the truth. Quite simply, we cherish Jesus and the Word because God has given us the gift, the capacity to do so. And that is profoundly glorious. And it ought to humble you beyond anything of any worth in this world. Number two, liars are deniers and confessors are possessors. Let's look at verses 22 and 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the, the Son has the Father also. I addressed those who denied the Son last week, so we won't dwell on that much this morning. But very straightforward. John is saying that those who deny that Jesus is the Christ, are liars. So let me sum that up for you very quickly. If Jesus is to you a God amongst many other gods, if He is simply a good man with some good moral teachings, if He is your personal ATM in the sky that dispenses goods and services to you at your immediate request, if He was not really a man, but only a legend, if He was not truly God, but only a type of God, if He was not sinless, if He was not the promised Messiah that the prophets proclaimed from old, if He was not from the beginning, if He was not raised from the dead, if He does not sit at the right hand of the Father in heaven, if your relationship with Him exists in some way outside of what is prescribed in the Word of God, if any of these ways is how you perceive Jesus, the Apostle John has called you a liar and an antichrist who denies not only the Son, but also the Father. Because no one who denies the Son has the Father. John Calvin wrote, The Father cannot be separated from the Son. And I've just mentioned some blatant heresies. Many of these things come straight from the teachings of many false religions in the world. But John is not limiting it to just these. He is saying that anyone who teaches Anyone who proclaims anything that is contrary to that which is true about Jesus and His true nature is a liar and an antichrist. In other words, he's saying those who went out from us and totally disregarded the truth of the Word of God, not only what it says, but what it demands from us and how we respond to it, they are liars. They are deceivers. They are antichrists. They are evil. And they do not have the Son or the Father. Strong words. 
but necessary words. Because Jesus Himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through Me. If you get Jesus wrong, you get everything wrong. And you go to hell. But oh, that great and glorious word in Scripture. But. Verse 23. But whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Praise God. The conscious and open confession that Jesus is the Son of God who is both divine and human results in a relationship with the Father. The possibility of agnosticism about the person and work of Jesus does not even seem to have occurred to the Apostle John. We are faced with either confessing or denying Jesus Christ. And that's it. There is no middle ground. You cannot ride the fence on this one. But you see, John was using this as an encouragement to the believers. And I hope it is an encouragement to you today, believer in Christ. If you confess and believe and cherish the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord, that He is the Son of God who lived in perfect obedience to the Father in a sinless life as holy God and holy man, then you possess the Father. True confessors of Christ the Son are true possessors of of the Father. Is this you? Is this a reality in your life? Is this in your way of thinking? in your knowledge, in your faith? If so, you have much to rejoice in. This is the truth, and this is what you confess. John has some great words of encouragement and an exhortation for you to follow. So let's look at the third and final point. Abiding in the truth is abiding in God. Verses 24 and 25. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us. Eternal life. So how does the anointing of the Spirit enable the saints to know the truth and protect them from the deception of Antichrist. Verse 24 is the key to this entire passage. What it shows is that the truth which the Holy Spirit enables us to know is a truth that is delivered in the preaching of the apostles. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. You see, two times in verse 24, John pronounces that the truth that should remain in them is truth that came to them through the ear at the beginning of their Christian walk. What you heard from the beginning. 
Again, what you heard from the beginning. He says it twice. That which they heard from the beginning was the preaching of the apostles. So, again, to make this abundantly clear, John is not saying that the anointing of the Spirit enables us to know the truth of Christ by giving us additional information beyond what they heard from the beginning. On the contrary, John is intent on telling them that they have enough revelation in what they already heard from the beginning. The old... Uh, he, he, he gives us earlier in 1 John chapter 2, verse 7, he says, I'm giving you an old commandment. I'm, write, I'm not writing you a new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard already. In other words, John makes an effort to avoid the saying that what the church needs is new revelation. It does not. It needs to let the original apostolic teaching about Christ abide in them. That is so true and so desperately lacking. I think a lot of what we see in our day was going on in John's day as well. As I sat back and thought about, why, why is that? Because no matter how well we know the apostolic teaching, no matter how much knowledge of the truth we possess, we still have a will and a nature that causes us to sin in unbelief. So we need this exhortation. We need to be reminded of this every single day. John is saying simply, remember the Gospel. If the Gospel abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And I've said this before in the past, and I want to reiterate again this morning. It's very important for us today. We often think of the Gospel as that truth that non-believers need to hear. That they might become believers. We might even think that it's for new Christians to remind them of what they just begun to believe. And in time, what ends up happening is we begin to think very subtly that the Gospel is what saves us. The Gospel is what brings us into relationship with God and into the Kingdom. But in order to grow... We need to learn more and more doctrine. And that's not a bad thing. I don't want to paint it in that light. That's a good thing that we would learn and grow in understanding more doctrine. But the problem with this type of thinking is that it guts any power and any motivation to change beyond what we can muster in our own strength and our own intellect. But the Gospel, you see, is not just that we are saved and then grow through our effort, but rather that we are saved and that we are being saved by the progressive, ongoing work of God in our lives each and every second of every day. This is the truth, that we are saved by the Gospel. We only grow as we 
learn how to apply the gospel to every area of our lives. It's the good news that we are saved. And it's also the good news of how we are going to grow in our life in Christ by the strength and power of Christ for the glory of Christ. So John is writing to tell us that if we have the truth, if we know and trust and love the gospel, it is evidence that we have the Spirit. And he says, let that abide in you, which you heard from the very beginning. Stick with the truth. And if you do stick with the truth, then you're going to stay with the Son and with the Father and enter into eternal life. Stick with the Gospel. John's saying, I know you've been exposed to a lot of things. I know you've been exposed to a lot of influences. But stick to the truth. Remain. Abide. Continue. Hold to that truth. There's a lot of human responsibility here. You can't just say, well, God's going to make sure I stay in there and hang in there. I don't need to worry about it. No. We must persevere. And if we persevere, we know that God has kept us. You are eternally secure, but you must persevere in the faith. You have the truth. You have the truth teacher. And the promise that you will abide and remain because your salvation is eternal. That doesn't mean you can be irresponsible. And so John says, as for you, hold on. Let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. Stick with the truth. True Christians will do that. They'll hang on to the truth. But not without sanctified, spirit-empowered Effort, And that's how we demonstrate that we are the people of the promise of verse 25. This is the promise that he made to us. Eternal life. Eternal life. So there you have it. John contrasts Antichrist. They depart. They deny. They deceive. With true Christians. They aren't deceived. They affirm the faith. And they remain faithful. And that's the difference. And so the question is, which are you? Which one are you? Time may tell, but you know now. We all know now which one we are. And now is the time to be sure you're a Christian. And not an antichrist masquerading because... If you're not with me, Jesus said, you're against me. And so, in closing, I want to say, if you're here this morning and the truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ does not abide in you, please hear my call right now to flee from your sins, to repent and believe in the truth of Jesus Christ. To make Jesus the chief cornerstone in your life on which everything else is built. He has died for the sins of His people. 
past, present, and future. And the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is attributed to us now through faith alone. The Bible tells us that every sinner who trusts in Jesus Christ can know that their sins are forgiven and that they will fall before the throne of Jesus in heaven when they depart from this earth. If we are trusting in Christ, if Jesus is our all in all, our ultimate treasure in this life, His death was sufficient and effective to absorb the wrath of God on our behalf for our sins. And His perfect, sinless obedience is attributed to us as our own. This is the only way for sinful men and women to stand before the Holy God in the judgment yet to come. And so that means that a sinner such as I will actually go to heaven. Since when I measure myself by the law, I know that I have not the slightest chance of earning enough merit or possessing enough good works to stand in God's presence on my own. Having faith in Christ is fighting for joy in Christ, delighting in Christ, being satisfied by Christ, and having put all of your affections in Christ. So let us be a people who fall before the majesty of our great God, acknowledging our own faults, acknowledging our own inaccuracies, and praying that He will make us even more conscious of them. And may this lead us to repentance and make us grow and increase in our faith as true sacrifices to Him. Since our Lord Jesus Christ gave Himself for our redemption, let us also seek to dedicate ourselves fully to Him. May we be led by Him to persevere so that in life and in death we seek no other contentment. We seek no other rest than to submit to His good will because by His grace He has anointed us with the gift of the Holy Spirit and has given us all knowledge that will abide in us that we can have joy to confess and abide in Him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we have a great desire to know and trust and love and abide in Jesus. And so, Father, I pray this morning that if there are any in here who do not abide in Jesus, if the truth does not abide in any who are here, that You would anoint them with the Holy Spirit as a gift from above. That the knowledge of the truth would be illumined for them. That they would see the Gospel for what it is. That they would trust it and love it and have a great desire to live in it all the days of their lives. And Lord, for those of us in here who are Yours, whom You have called according to Your purposes, Help us always to cherish You, to love You, and to serve for Your glory. That all other things in this world would be considered rubbish to us compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let that be our prayer. Let that be our life and let that be our 
great desire. Lord, we love You and thank You for the instruction of Your Word. We pray that it would dwell richly within us, that we would abide in the Father and in the Son by the power and work of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.